Okay. Let's just uh, bow our hearts and just commit this uh, time of study to the Lord, shall we? Father God, we thank you again for your word. Father, we thank you that it is living and powerful. The Father, that it is alive and it's here to instruct, to teach and to cause us to grow. Lord, to challenge us in the way that we think. Lord, to challenge us in the way that we live. Father, we thank you that your word tells us that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, as we look at these things this morning, we ask that you continue that work that you've begun in us. That work of sanctification, of setting us apart. Setting us apart from the things of this world. But most importantly, setting us apart for you. So, Lord, we give you this time. We pray that you just take my words now. Father, use them for your purpose. And, Father, open our hearts, Lord, and our ears that we would receive that which you have for us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit this morning be our teacher. And Lord, may we be willing to respond to that which he shows us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every chapter that we've gone through so far in Galatians, I think, has been, there's been all sorts of wonderful things that we've drawn from it. But I've really enjoyed this week preparing um, for this chapter four because there's so much here in terms of instruction. Now, just again, just to remind ourselves, uh, Galatia... It's not a church as such. It's a, it's a region. It's an area. It was actually split. It's the area today that we refer to as Turkey. And uh, we've got South Galatia and North Galatia. Now, typically, we're interested in the area of South Galatia. These are the churches that Paul planted on his first missionary journey. So on the first missionary journey, he leaves Antioch, comes across to Cyprus. Uh, the governor of the island is converted, becomes a Christian. Eventually, they cross over the island, sail from Paphros right across to the mainland, and then all the way up here to Antioch. There's two Antiochs, so don't get confused. We've got Antioch in Syria, and then there's other Antioch up here. Uh, and then they come down from there to Iconium, to Lystra, and Derbe. And these three churches specifically are the ones that are mentioned in Scripture, but of course others in this region would have been impacted and affected. So these are the people that Paul is writing to. So that's the area that we are concerned with. Now, We've already looked last week that there's a number of arguments that Paul is presenting to try and convince these Galatians that their drifting from the simplicity of the gospel is wrong. Now he started with a personal argument, we've seen that in the first chapter, simply arguing the fact that this gospel had been given to him by God. And really making the, the, the point himself that you know, he'd been saved, that God had given him this revelation. It wasn't given into by another apostle or anybody else. That Jesus himself had given this revelation and this gospel that he's preaching. Also in the third chapter, there's this logical argument that he gives. Um, just giving a very simple, you know, looking at if somebody dies, they're no longer, somebody's no longer bound by the law. Very practical things, but we're going to go on in chapter 4 and look at three more arguments that Paul will present. Firstly, the dispensational argument, I'll explain that in a moment. Then, kind of a sentimental argument that he gives them, and then finally an allegorical argument. And we'll explain those and try and unpack it as we go through. Now, the first thing I want to try and help us to understand, because we're using this word this morning, dispensational, uh, what does it mean? Now, you may have come across this term before, dispensations and so on. Well, from a scriptural context, really a dispensation is a period of time separated by two key scriptural events. That's all a dispensation is. We're just talking about a period of time, there's something that starts it off and something that ends it. So, uh, one of the uh, definitions uh, from Collins' dictionary says, the ordering of life and events by God. So that's one definition, or a divine decree affecting an individual or group. And all of those, in a sense, apply, because, of course, this is God's working with mankind. Now, typically, most commentators conclude that there are seven dispensations and there's nothing in the Bible that specifically says this. It's just a way that, in a sense, it's helpful sometimes to break things down. A little bit like when you do a jigsaw, you may separate all the certain pieces up. You're going to separate the edge pieces up, and then maybe certain colours. You know, we do that to make it easier to form the whole picture. That's all we're doing uh, when we talk about these terms. And theologians and Bible commentators, they do the same thing. Um, and typically there's seven dispensations that we look at. Now just to give us a brief kind of understanding of those, the first one is referred to as the dispensation of innocence. A lot of commentators will refer to it by that name. Uh, and then conscience, I'm going to break these down in a moment as well. Human government, promise, law, grace, or the church age, uh, and then the kingdom age. Now to probably make that a little bit easier to understand, 
The first dispensation really takes us the first period of time from creation up until the fall. It's the way that God dealt with man in that first period of time. Now, of course, for Adam and Eve, the rules, in a sense, were very different than they were subsequently because they had freedom. You know, they weren't bound, in that sense, by sin up until the fall. So it's very, very different from there for then at that time. The second dispensation then takes us from the fall of man up until the flood and that period of time. Third really takes us from the flood up until the time of Abraham. So the world, in a sense, is starting to, to grow and expand and spread out and so on. And then we get to the time of Abraham and God does something very, very specific and distinct at this point. He calls an individual and says that through him... All the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he chooses this man and his descendants, which become the nation of Israel. Why do so many people hate Israel today? Well, they don't necessarily realize it, but behind the scenes, there is, of course, a spiritual realm, and the devil hates Israel. Why? Because they were the nation that God chose, through whom the Messiah would come, and also through whom he would give us not just the law, but also he would give us his word and reveal his word to us. And God chose Abraham and his family. The fourth dispensation really would take us from the time of Abraham up until the time of the law, because there wasn't any specific law in that period of time, but then the law becomes established, and that really then takes us all the way up into the cross. And this, that really is the area that we're looking at very much this morning, that period of time where the law had its reign, in a sense, it was powerful, up until the time of the cross. And then the sixth dispensation from the cross up to the time of the second coming. Okay, so also sometimes referred to as the church age or the age of grace. And then finally, the seventh dispensation is often referred to as the kingdom age. Now that will be the time when Jesus will return, will establish his throne, sit on the throne of David. Yeah, a lot of people have kind of problems with this, and they, uh, there's all sorts of people that will try and uh, can make it kind of picture language and allegorical. And of course, it doesn't really mean that Jesus is going to return, and he won't really rule on the throne. Well, you know, you have a real problem, because so much of the Old Testament says that he will. He made distinct promises to David that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne of David and rule. And Gabriel, we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, that... Gabriel, when he speaks to Mary, says that the child that she is going to bear will sit on the throne of David. Was Gabriel lying? Did he get it wrong? No. It hasn't happened yet. It's something that is yet future. Jesus is destined to sit on the throne. And even Satan knew that. When Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he offers him the kingdoms of the world. Now, of course, at this time, the kingdoms of this world have been handed over to Satan. He's the God of this world for the time being. But ultimately, and we read when we get to the book of Revelation, Jesus will take back, rightfully reclaim the kingdoms of this world. He's the kinsman redeemer, the one, he's a human, he's a man, um, but he also is God, manifest in the flesh, and will reclaim this earth. So those typically are the distinctions. Now again, just looking at time-wise for us, to make it easier, this is kind of time from creation up until where we are now. That first period in the Garden of Eden. Then we have that period of time up until the flood. And then human government really starts to be established with Tower of Babel and all these kind of things. The language is being divided. People separating out around the world. And then we have this time of promise and looking forward to that which is to come. But then God establishes the law. This is such an important thing. You know, there were two prerequisites for the Messiah to come. One of them that was the monarchy had to be established. The other one was that the law had to be established. And we'll see in Galatians the reason for the law. The law simply had to be established to confine all under sin. In other words, to show everybody that it was sinful. You see, the law is God's perfect holy standard. The law is not bad. You know, we'll be speaking this morning and you may go away with that kind of impression that the law's a bad thing. No, the law's a really good thing. It's God's righteous standard. The problem is none of us can keep it. But the law had to be established to show that we cannot make God's standard, which then begs the question, how can anybody be right with God? And of course, then we come to the cross. And that's the next period that we then deal with, the church age, which we're now in. And then finally, we get to the, the, the rapture, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we get to the kingdom age, when Jesus will return and establish his throne. Now, there are a couple of commentators that would differ slightly from this. 
they'll argue that this period here is all one period of time, the church age the same, and then we've got a separate period of time as being the tribulation. Uh, and then finally our seventh being the kingdom age. Now actually, if I were to, to do this, I would make it eight areas, eight dispensations, because I think these two should be probably separate, and I think the tribulation ought to be separate, because it is a very different period of time in terms of God's dealing with mankind and the earth. Um, but it doesn't matter, it's just, there's no fixed rules in this, it's just what commentators have said. And as I say, it's simply a way of helping us trying to understand the overall picture. So, let's move on. Paul is going to highlight then a distinction between the Old Testament believers who were under the law with those that are in this present dispensation, this period of grace. So this is what Paul is now going to do. And the issue that Paul will raise is one of sonship. Something that would have been very, very familiar to the people of that culture in that time. Now the problem is, it's not necessarily as familiar to us. So we need to do a little bit of, kind of understanding of what it was like back then. So, to understand the difference, we need to really understand these terms between the difference between a child and an heir. In the Old Testament times, it was not uh, that all offspring would immediately be recognised as sons. Okay, so if a, a father were to have children, male children particularly, they wouldn't necessarily be recognised as sons. Of course, from a biological perspective, yes. But the idea of a son would be somebody who would inherit you see, children were not recognised as their father's heirs until they were officially adopted as sons. And at that point, they then became heirs. So there was a distinction. And so for a part of their life, they were no better than servants, as we'll see in a moment. So knowing this, it helps us to understand the first seven verses that we're going to look at in a moment in Galatians 4, which look at this issue from a perspective of a household of that day. And this is what Paul is going to argue. So verse 1 of Galatians 4, Paul says this, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. Now what's Paul saying? Well, he first of all speaks of a child. And really what he's highlighting is the distinction between a child, the, the Greek word is nepios, which is like an infant, a young child, someone typically without speech. Or we may put it one who didn't have a voice. With an heir. Okay, the huos is the Greek word, literally a son. And he's highlighting the distinction between these two. And really the child is no different than a servant in that he has no say, even though technically... All may be rightfully his. The whole estate, whole thing, everything that the family has may rightfully be his. But up until a certain point, until he becomes an heir, until in that culture they went through a ceremony, he was simply regarded as a child and really no better than a servant. Paul carries on and says, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Now, just tutors and governors. So, Though the birthright, he would have, or through the birthright, he would eventually own the entire estate. He nevertheless was kept in subservience like a slave in that he enjoyed no freedom and he could make no decisions. In fact, the heir as a child was under guardians, uh, epithropos is the Greek term there, uh, which by the way differs from another word that we'll look at later, which is a pedagogue, which is a chaperone in a sense, somebody who would look after them. And we'll, that word will come up later. But the guardian was literally somebody who would care for his person, look after his safety, his well-being and so on. And also um, okinomos, which is a trustee in a sense, somebody who protected his estate. Now that's not that dissimilar that we have in our culture today. If somebody who is very young and their parents die and there's a lot of wealth left to them, then the, the wealth is often put in trust until a certain time. And there will be trustees that will look, and look after and manage that. So it's not that different for our culture. Notice again that this is this child is under tutors governors until the time appointed by the father. And again, this was true until he came of age as a son. Now that age varied in the Jewish, Grecian and also the Roman societies. The coming of age was always normally associated with a ceremony to formally acknowledge the son as an heir. So there would be quite a big uh, fanfare and everything made of this uh, big celebration that the son has finally become an heir. Now, look at this. Paul says, even so. So he uses the example he's just given to demonstrate that we were once children that had not been appointed as heirs. 
She says, even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Again, the children, the same word that we looked at a moment ago, in, in our previous state, we were actually no better than slaves. So when we were, as it were, under the law, under the systems of this world, Paul is arguing it's like being a child that has not yet come to that place of being an heir. And he says we were kept in bondage under the elements of this world. And really that's the, the scope of the slavery was described as being under the basic rudiments. Now that's the, the word in the Greek that's there. And you know, be it under the Jewish law or the Greek law, the Roman culture, or for us, even in our own culture. You know, be under the, the, the laws of the land and everything else. So thus all were enslaved, Paul is arguing, until Christ came to liberate all who would simply believe in his name. Hopefully, for the Galatians, the penny is starting to drop for these Galatians, who are also now liberated. You see, these Galatians were Christians, but the trouble is, they were wanting to come back under the law. And then Paul says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Now, there's a lot in this verse. First of all, the fullness of the time. Now, as explained in verse 2, that would be a time that's appointed by the Father, a time when the child would become an heir. Now, as a human father chose the time for his child to become an adult son or an heir, so the Heavenly Father chose the time for the coming of Christ to make a way for people to transition from bondage under the law to spiritual sonship through Christ. Now, the other things that are interesting to note here is that this fullness of the time, it was a very specific time in human history. It was the best time for Jesus to have come. And these are the reasons. Because one, Rome was now the dominating world empire. And because of the Roman civilization that had spread, they'd now got a road system that was spreading far and wide. It made travel very, very easy. You know, even in this country, we still see Roman roads. And, you know, Rome were very uh, uh, famous. Rome was very famous for uh, building roads wherever they went and making travel possible. Now, that was really important. Why? For the spread of the gospel. Now, the other thing, of course, is that the Grecian civilization provided a language which was then adopted effectively by the whole world. At that time, pretty much everybody would speak Greek. So now we have a common language to again facilitate the gospel going throughout the world. The other thing that had occurred was that the Jews, because of problems that had occurred in Israel and because of the Roman occupation and so on, they'd fled, they'd left, and they decided to move around. And so they proclaimed the idea of there being one God, the idea of monotheism, and also the hope that the Messiah was coming. Now, of course, the Jews didn't recognize Jesus, but they'd still proclaim this in the synagogues, particularly of the Mediterranean world. So God had laid the foundation. Everything was ready. It really was the fullness of the time. And on top of that, of course, it's the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been given way back in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, we have this incredible prophecy where we have 69 weeks of years, in fact, 70 weeks of years that are prophesied. But we get to that 69 weeks of years and then we're told that the Messiah would come. And of course we've got to that stage now at this point when Jesus had come. All of us was complete. Now again, God sent forth his son. We mustn't lose sight of this. That it was God who sent the pre-existent one, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to earth on a mission. And again we're told that Jesus was made of a woman. You see, the Son was not only deity, he was also humanity. An expression, born of a woman, simply indicates that. Now, it's really important that Jesus was a human, was born of a woman, because it had to be a relative of Adam who would be then entitled to claim back title to the earth. This is why in the book of Revelation, you get there, you find that John is weeping, sobbing convulsively. Why? Because they're looking for somebody to open this scroll. It has to be a relative of Adam. And no one is found worthy until, of course, Jesus steps forward. Jesus was found worthy because he was a man and yet he was also sinless. He was worthy. So, so many of these things, all these threads tie up through scripture. 
And again, the reference made of a woman really harmonises with that which we find in scripture elsewhere, that there would be this virgin birth. We find it, of course, taught in the Gospels. In Matthew, we find it uh, prophesied originally in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, and actually alluded to really in Genesis 3.15, when it speaks of the seed of the woman. Also, interestingly, in Jeremiah 22, there was a curse on one of the kings of Israel. We mentioned it briefly in our study of kings on Jeconiah, that none of his descendants would be able to sit on the throne. And that causes a real problem until you understand that God had another plan. And through Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba, there's another line that comes all the way down to Mary. So legally... Through the line that Matthew gives us, Jesus considered the throne, but from a blood point of view, Jesus comes down through Mary and also is entitled to sit on the throne. So, a lot of those things tied together as well. Now we're also told that Jesus was made under the law. He was a Jew. He was born as a Jew. And so therefore under the, the Jewish legal system. But he of course kept the law perfectly. In fact, fulfilled the law. Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And of course he did. But though he was not guilty himself, he finally ended up paying the curse that the law promised for those that break the law, even though he hadn't broken the law. Why? Well, because we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made sin for us. This incredible transaction that takes place where Jesus becomes sin, he becomes the guilty one, and all of our sins are put upon him, and his righteousness is given to us. This incredible transaction. Verse 5 says, to redeem them, the purpose of all this is to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So back to this theme now of heirs and sonship and so on. Now, the first thing is came to redeem those. This again is non-redemption from the curse of the law, but from the slavery to the entire mosaic system. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. And the emphasis is not really on the penalty of the law, as we'll see in verse 13, or sorry, in verse 13 of chapter 3, but on its bondage. The fact that we're under the law, and we can never be free of the law in that sense. So since Christ redeemed and set free those who were under the law, the question really now he's posing is, why should Gentile converts, as the Galatians were, now wish to be placed back under it. You see, he's made the point that, you know, you think of these children who hadn't yet got this place of uh, being an heir of sonship, why would they want to go back to that place where they lose all that freedom, all that liberty, all that privilege, by now putting themselves back under this system? And that's the argument that Paul is presenting to them. And again, to receive the adoption of sons. See, Christ's incarnation and death secured for believers the full rights of sons. You see, we've been adopted. It's an incredible thing to try and get our head around. And when you understand the cultural significance of that, that we've been given this position of being heirs with Christ. You see, all the enjoyments and privileges of a mature son in a family belong to those who have entered into the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. As we read in Romans 8 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. What a wonderful hope and promise. And then it says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now we have this promise that because we are now in this position of being heirs, no longer sons, no longer children as such, that we've been given this gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes is given the Holy Spirit. It's this precious, precious gift. You see, God the Father not only sent his son, but also the Holy Spirit. And so the whole Trinity we see is involved in this work of salvation. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God to every believer because of this sonship, because we now have the right to inherit. And of course the Holy Spirit is present in each believer's heart. And we, we know that we're also told in Corinthians that the Holy Spirit is the seal or the guarantee of our inheritance. What a wonderful thing that is, that we have that assurance that we have this inheritance awaiting us. We also have another a word that we see here that we're very, very familiar with. That because we are sons, God has sent forth the 
the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, and this is what we now cry, Abba, Father. Again, we're very familiar with the, the term, of course, we're very familiar with the song. But the Spirit moves the believer to pray, addressing God as Abba. Now the word Abba is from the Aramaic word forefather. And it's really, the, the comparison in English would be like daddy. Now, I don't know about you, for those of you who have had children, you know, we, we're trying to keep our children doing the daddy and mummy thing. You know, if they say dad or mum, we, we ignore them at the moment. And we still want to be daddy and mummy for a little bit longer. You know, there'll come a time that no doubt will become dad and mum. But for now, I want my little girls to call me daddy. Because there's something lovely and special about that. Of course, God, of course, wants that kind of relationship with us. You see, this term is actually used by Jesus in Gethsemane when he's praying. It's a familiar form. It just speaks of this kind of intimacy, you know, and trust, as opposed to that kind of formalism and legalism elsewhere. Now, I just want to give you a quick uh, Hebrew lesson, because it's just a wonderful thing to help us understand. Now, the word... And first of all, as you should say, alphabet, where do we get that word from? Well, it really comes from the Hebrew. We're very similar in Greek, but actually the Hebrew language predates the Greek language. I think Hebrew is probably the original and first language that we had. And of course, the first letter in the Hebrew language is an aleph. The second letter in the Hebrew language is a bet. And so we have aleph bet, alphabet. That's where the name comes from. Now, the first letter, as I said, is Aleph, and it literally means, because every Hebrew word, as well as having a um, the sounding and everything else, is phonetic, but it's also pictorial, and it means kind of the first or the leader. The Aleph, if it's drawn, is designed to look like the, the head of an ox, implying strength, or again, the leader. Uh, and so that's what the, the word or the, the letter means. Bet, the second letter in the Hebrew language, means house. Now we're familiar with that because we understand Bethlehem. Bethlehem simply means the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Um, so we, and there's another, there's a number of cases where that occurs in scripture, that, that use of the word bet in the terms of house. Now if we put them together, now remember that Hebrew reads the other way. Hebrew reads from right to left, not from left to right. So reading that way we get A, B. And that word ab, the leader of the house, is the word for father. So you, you start to see how the Hebrew language builds and is constructed. So the word ab is those two letters joined together, meaning the leader of the house is the father. Now, another letter that we have in the Hebrew language is a he. Okay, it's typical or equivalent to, in a sense, to our H. Um, and really it's the essence or breath or spirit. Now we see it, of course, with Abraham, who becomes Abraham, as God gives him this new name, and Sarah, who becomes Sarah, the H is given to them in those occasions. So it's the breath or spirit. Now, when we put an H in between our A and our B, we get the word Ahab, which literally means the essence of the Father. And that word Ahab, in Hebrew, is the word love. It's the essence of the Father. What a lovely kind of picture we have with those words that are given. But this is what we are to refer to God as, this this Abba, Father, this intimacy that we can have. And then Paul carries on and says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. I mean, that's cause for celebration right here and right now. You know, that we are no more in that position of being servants, but we've been given now this position of sonship. And then he goes on and says, and if you're a son, then an heir. An heir of God through Christ. I just think of the magnitude of what this is saying. So to conclude this section, Paul declares that the Galatians were no longer slaves, but were sons and heirs. Just as a note, again, we talked last time a little bit about the way that plural and singular are used. The plural form is in verse 6, are replaced by singular in verse 7, making it more personal. Making it, it applies to you as an individual, not just generally us or a group of. It's you this applies to. You see, God's family, sonship carries with it airship. It's a wonderful thing. How be it then? So given all of what we've just seen, Paul's saying to these questions, how be it then? How be it then? When you knew not God, did you service unto them which by nature are no gods? So, 
Prior to their conversion, the Galatians, in their ignorance of the one true God, they were misled, of course, by pagan priestcraft into bondage to false gods like Zeus and Hermes and so on that was cultural at that time. And then Paul says, but now, after that you have known God, or rather known of God, how turn you, turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Now, this phrase here, you have known God and known of God. It's, uh, this word, uh, gnosko, it comes with the same root word that we have, uh, the Gnostics, just meaning knowledge, really. But the idea is to, to learn to know, to come to know, uh, to get to a knowledge of, perceive. But it's also used in scripture as the idiom for the intimate relationship between a man and a woman. And that again is the idea that Paul is conveying here. So, a great change had taken place. And they'd come to know God, now that's salvation from the perspective of man, or to be known by God, which is salvation from God's perspective. Yet having come to know intimately, and on a personal level, the true God, the Galatians were giving up the liberty and the light of Christianity for the twilight and the bondage of Judaism. They were seeking to come back under this religious system that they'd been set free from. In fact, set free from, they were never actually part of that system because they had their other gods that they've worshipped. But now they're seeking to come under this system that could never give them freedom. So Paul was amazed and also dismayed. You know, did they understand that they'd be going back to a state of religious slavery? And really, was that what they were wanting? Paul speaks at the end of these weak and beggarly elements. Uh, you know, if so, why would they be attracted to a system that was weak? You know, it could not justify or energize the God living, and you know, it was miserable. It couldn't provide an inheritance for them. The law couldn't give them anything. It would just show them that they were guilty before God. And the principles he speaks of, really, is a system of the world, and Paul had already referred to that, as we said in verse 3. Now, really, there are only two religions in the world, the true and false. And really, it is as easy as that to break it down. But really, the false religions are all alike and they say, something in my hand I bring. The true religion revealed from heaven leads one to sing, nothing in my hand I bring. That's the difference. Every other religion in the world, you have to do something. For Christianity, you have to do nothing. It's all about what God has done so that he gets the glory. It's not about how good you are, the effort that you can put in. As we read in Titus 3 verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Paul carries on and says, look, you observe days and months and times and years. And in this, of course, he's speaking of the Jewish calendar, the the, the feast they have. Samson, Raphael. Hirsch said, uh, the Jews' catechism is his calendar. You know, under the influence of the Judaizers, the Galatians had begun to observe the Mosaic calendar once again. And they started to keep these special days. The, the feast days, there's the, the Hamoyedim in the, the Hebrew, there's 70 appointed times. Now that includes the weekly Sabbaths, but also all the festivals, all the feasts through the year. And they're starting to again observe those things. And Paul is saying, you know, why are you doing this? You see, they observed them thinking that they would be gaining some sort of merit before God. Paul had already made it clear that works could not be added to faith as grounds for either justification or sanctification. Paul doesn't object to observing the Sabbath and observing feasts. You know, he kept them as a Jew himself. But he objected to Gentiles taking to them as a means of salvation or as a means of pleasing God. Paul says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. <laughs> Literally, Paul's saying, I've labored to the point of exhaustion. You know, if their attachment to legalistic practice was to continue. Paul really kind of, almost disheartened by this. And the Apostle's words emphasize his strong antipathy toward legalistic religion. And it was coming from someone, of course, who was once more zealous for the Jews' religion than anyone. Remember how Paul had been such a, uh, a, a zealous individual. 
really you know, putting Christians to death because of their faith, because he saw them as being challenging the law of Moses. But now Paul has counted all of that as rubbish and come to this point of understanding the liberty in Christ. You know, some of us may make good impressions, <laughs> but not us. You read in First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You see, Paul here is really just talking about these individuals that have made this profession of Christ and then getting back under some sort of legal system. Adding something to the gospel. And he's saying, you know, okay, they're with, with us, but they've gone out from us. You know, we've been in a situation recently where we've seen that type of thing happening here. And people, in, a, in essence, preaching a false gospel. Adding to the gospel something that is not there. It's exactly the thing that Paul is tackling here with these Galatians. Okay, so let's just move swiftly through these last couple of things. And the sentimental argument that Paul brings, he says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You not injured me at all. What he's saying here is that, you know, this personal appeal is challenging them. Become like me because I became like you. That is, become free from the law as I am. Because after my conversion, I became like you Gentiles, no longer living under the law. The irony, of course, is that the Galatian Gentiles were putting themselves under the law after they'd been converted. The last clause of verse 12 there also belongs with the following verses, which Paul is relating how he was received by the Galatians on his first visit to them. At that time, he laboured under the handicap of an illness, which we're going to see in a moment, but he remained until he had preached the gospel to them. This illness hadn't stopped him preaching to them. And of course, they allowed him to preach even through this. And we'll see. He says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first. Now Paul sought to touch their hearts by reminding them of those early days when he came to, again, we mentioned these places, Antioch in Pisidia, and then Iconium, Lystra and Derbury, all those were Galatian cities. He didn't come with pomp and ceremony, we read about that in 2 Corinthians, but simply coming to preach Christ. And he says, And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, he's just speaking of the way, look, when I came to you, you were willing to take me as I am. And it, it's assumed, of course, that this infirmity that Paul is speaking about here involved his eyes. But whatever it was, it wasn't a problem. They overlooked it, and of course they didn't stop him from uh, preaching and speaking to them. It's interesting, of course, that Paul healed many sick people, but he never healed himself. You know, those uh, faith healers that we have on Christian TV, we really need to, to look at this bit. You know, three times we're told in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prays, but he's told that God's grace would be sufficient for him. He says, Paul then, where is the blessedness you speak of? You know, because they've been blessed because he'd come to them and preached the gospel. For I bear you record, he says, that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and had given them to me. Now, it's kind of a strange verse, really. But really, they received Paul with joy and congratulated themselves that the apostle had preached in their midst and this blessedness and so on. And they make this strange offer again. And this seems to lead to the suggestion that Paul had a problem with his eyesight. That thorn in the flesh that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12 may well have been something to do with his eyes. And probably, it's just a conjecture, but I think it may well be to do with that blinding vision he saw on the Damascus Road. You remember that everybody else saw this great bright light. Paul, if you remember, was blinded for a few days until Ananias comes um, and lays his hands upon Paul's eyes and those scales come falling off Paul's eyes and he can see again. You know, Paul sees this vision of Jesus, and I, I don't know, I just think that probably affected his natural eyesight from that point on. You know, once you've seen Jesus, nothing else is going to look right, is it? Nothing else is going to look normal. So, maybe that was the, the case, but whatever, Paul seems to have had a problem with his eyes, and he's just making these points, that look, I came to you, I had this, this problem, this infirmity, you still received me at the time, and he says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now this again is one of those things. How incredible that those who once sat joyfully under Paul's ministry 
learning of the gospel of grace from him, now would seemingly turn against him because he speaks the truth to them. Isn't it interesting how the truth has a way of dividing all those who are not willing to humble themselves? Once again, we've been there. And it is amazing. And I've spoken to other pastors recently who have had other issues in their churches that people have sat there willingly in ministry for, for years sometimes. And then something occurs and it's a disagreement. And rather than coming together over the scriptures and looking for a resolution, individuals leave. And it's it's sad. It's always sad when those things happen. But unfortunately, it's always because people are not willing to humble themselves. It says they zealously affect you, but not well. Yes, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Now he's speaking of these uh, Judaizers. So while Paul's attitude toward the Galatians was garless, the legalists had improper motives. Those that were trying to get them into the Jewish law. And they were kind of using flattery. And the, the word exclude you, uh, it's the same word, actually comes from the same root as ecclesia, the word that we have for the church, the called out ones. But what they were wanting to do was to lock out Paul from the conversation. And they were wanting to just have their own input to the Galatians so that they would become their followers rather than following Paul and following Christ. He said, but it's a good thing. And Paul just turns this around here. It's an interesting twist as Paul just turns this. He says, it's a good thing to be zealously affected always in the good thing. And not only when I am present with you. Really what he's saying is, you know, if you're going to be zealous, and by the way, zealous and being zealous is not a spiritual gift. We keep mentioning this. Uh, if you are going to be zealous, be zealous for the right reasons. You know, and Paul is saying, turn it around and actually be zealous to win the Judaizers for Christ. It's most often a very dangerous trait, though, being zealous. And if one is zealous, it must be, as I said, for the right cause. In the case, of course, of the Judaizers, it wasn't. And so the final argument that Paul then presents, he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth, again, until Christ be formed in you. And he's just using very kind of intimate, kind of personal language here. Um, addressing them very tenderly, my dearborn ones, and using this kind of expression of kind of a mother's birth pains as he's kind of brought them to birth in their spiritual life. Um, you know, he'd experienced this once for their salvation, and effectively was in travail again for their deliverance from his false teachers. You know, Paul had travelled miles. Paul had seen, you know, so many things on his journeys. He'd gone through so many challenges. And now to see people leading these sheep away, deceiving them, it must have broken his heart. And so as he writes this letter, really pleading with them to think about what they were trying to do. And he says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. In other words, I don't want to be coming across harsh and shouting at you effectively, which is what he's trying to do through his letter. He says, for I stand in doubt of you. You know, he had this deep desire to be with them. So they could speak to them gently. Well, of course firmly, but in love. You know, and truth will always be spoken in love. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's spoken weakly. You know, there should be that firmness as well. And sometimes, you know, we need to speak the truth in love. But that doesn't mean that we all go weak and you know, avoid issues or whatever. Paul certainly wasn't doing that. And really it's kind of a masterful stroke that the Apostle now turns to this wonderful scriptural illustration to conclude his theological defense of justification by faith. Because now we see Paul build. He's going to use an Old Testament story from the life of Abraham. That he's going to review. And he's going to talk about the contrast between the Mosaic law and grace, between works and faith. And I'm going to provide an opportunity for him to verbalize the pointed charge to the Galatians that they should cast out the legalizers. And really, he's kind of calling them to arms in a sense. Look, realize this silly situation you've got yourself into and get rid of, don't listen, and cast out those that are saying this. He says, tell me. Okay, sit up, listen, think. Tell me. You that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? In other words, do you actually know what the law says? You know, you want to be under the law. Have you actually stopped to think what the law says? 
You see, the Galatians had not yet submitted to the bondage of the law. They hadn't yet gone that far, but they were getting very close to it. And Paul desperately wanted to stop them and turn them back to a life under grace. As a transition to what would immediately follow, he then challenges the Galatians to be aware or to understand what the law really said. He says, for it is written that Abraham Abraham had two sons, the one of a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. Now he's going to return to that argument we looked at at the beginning. He says, turning again to Abraham, he's appealing to the founder of the Jewish nation, again, whose physical descent all Jews trace their blessings from. Now incidentally, John the Baptist and Jesus all declared the physical descent from Abraham was not enough to guarantee spiritual blessing. But this is the allegory he's going to bring. He's going to address the justified but immature believers who were under the influence now of these legalistic teachers who were desiring to be under the law. So, there's therefore no application to a sinner seeking justification. I just want to make it clear that this isn't about a sinner wanting to be saved by grace or seeking to be justified. This is simply dealing with those who are already saved but are now getting into some sort of legal trouble. Now it raises the question for the fifth time we're going to see in the epistle, the question, is the believer under the law? And that's really the, the thing that Paul's been hammering about all these kind of last few weeks as we've been studying through this, and this is where he's going to conclude. So we've got the old covenant of the law and then the new covenant of grace. Now the law we're going to see him argue is symbolised by Hagar, who was a slave girl as opposed to Sarah, who was a free woman. We've got Ishmael, a son born after the flesh, and Isaac, a son born miraculously by God's promise. And, of course, the Old Covenant is represented by Jerusalem in Paul's day, still in spiritual and political bondage, contrasted with the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is free and glorious. So those are going to be the things that Paul is going to use in the argument, he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. Paul reminded his readers that Abraham had these two sons. Those born later, by the way, are not relevant for the, for the argument or for the question that Paul's looking at here. And he says that they that should consider which of the two were, uh, sorry, which of the two they were most like. In other words, which of the two sons now these Galatians would most resemble? Either Ishmael or would it be Isaac? So, Isaac, of course, born of Sarah, was free. Ishmael, born of Hagar, the slave girl. Now, according to the law and the custom, the status of the mother affected the status of the son. And he's really saying, you know, are you going to be like Isaac and free, or be like Ishmael and in bondage? He says, but he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was born by promise. So the second contrast concerned the manner in which the sons were conceived also. Ishmael was born in an ordinary natural way, which is, of course, the nature of the flesh, requiring no miracle and no promise. In fact, (laughs) it was a result of Abraham trying to help God. And he represents, of course, the works of the flesh. And that's the point Paul is trying to make. Isaac, on the other hand, was born as a result of a promise or prophecy, thus by faith. Abraham and Sarah was we know beyond the age of childbearing but God miraculously fulfilled his promise in bringing life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb so Isaac also interestingly is a type of Christ he was supernaturally announced beforehand named before he was born we're told in Isaac thy seed shall be called that's before he was born offered as a substitutionary offering and then returned to Abraham after effectively being dead for three days. We see Isaac there as a type of Christ as well, just as an aside. Now, in order to emphasize the contrast between the law and grace, Paul next used the historical events that we've just been speaking about as a type or an allegory. That is, he treated the two mothers figuratively. He did not say in any sense, by the way, that he's denying the literal meaning of the story. So when we talk about allegory, he's not saying that the events of Abraham didn't happen, I remember speaking to an Anglican minister once um, who had gone into a school um, locally, this was back in Kent, and uh, it was about Christmas time, and he made some comment about uh, Mary and it may not have actually happened and they may not have been real people and all these kind of things. So <laughs> I went to have a chat with him and he graciously allowed us to go and see him and I went with a, with a friend of mine and I was talking to him about scripture and I said you know do, do you trust scripture 
You know, I said, do you believe it's God's word? And he was like, well, yes, 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 I do. And then we started giving him some, I said, but, you know, so, but you was questioning the reality. He said, well, we don't know that these are real people. I said, but what about people like Abraham? I said, surely you believe that Abraham was a real person. He said, well, we don't know whether Abraham was a real person. It could have just been a, a type or somebody that was invented just to illustrate these things. So, I said, well, we won't come jump forward. I said, well, what about David? I mean, David was a king of Israel. Well, again, we don't really know whether he was a real person. At that point, I kind of like, okay, <laughs> bye-bye. Time to stop the conversation. That was his position, sadly. But uh, again, when Paul here is talking about allegory, he's not suggesting in any sense that these weren't real events, but he's using them to make his argument. So he says, which things are an allegory for these things are the two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, which is Hagar, or Agar, as it's translated. Um, so the first, the, the Paul points here to the, of the two covenants, the Mosaic had its origin in Mount Sinai. Those under the legal covenant were slaves, as Hagar brought forth the slave, so does the law. And then, and by the way, Hagar, which is the Greek uh, form of the name Hagar, um, the readers, of course, expect to understand uh, and supply the implicit reference to the Abrahamic covenant, which, of course, was a gracious system represented by Sarah, which, through its messianic promise, brought forth children who are free. This is the contrast. There's okay. so a next point, Paul points to the two Jerusalems. He says, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And that's an interesting point. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. We'll leave that for now. And answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage to her children. So now Paul starts to talk about these two Jerusalems. Hagar also stood for the first century city of Jerusalem, a city enslaved to Rome, and is slavery to the law. Jerusalem at that time was the centre of legal religion, of course. And the reason the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem for over 1900 years uh, was because they knew not the time of their visitation. That's from Luke 19. And remember they said that we have no king but Caesar. That spoke of Jesus' blood being upon us and our children. Of course these things uh, were fulfilled and they were cast out of their land. But they remain the children of Hagar in a sense to this day. Uh, but the time of the tribulation, we're going to see a turning that they will repent. And I believe the prophet Joel speaks very clearly of that time when Jerusalem, when Israel as a nation will turn back to their saviour. And of course in Zechariah we have that wonderful prophecy about their eyes being opened. And we should of course urge our Jewish friends, there's plenty of scriptures to get them to read, by Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 and many more. These are in the notes to, to have a look at. But we carry on. Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Now Paul makes this point. So we've got two women, Hagar and Sarah. Hagar in bondage, Sarah free. Two sons, Ishmael, again, effectively slave, Isaac free. Two covenants, we've got law and grace. Two mountains, Sinai, representing the law, and Calvary, representing freedom. And the two cities, the earthly city, Jerusalem, under bondage, and, and so on, and the heavenly Jerusalem, representing free. So this is the argument that Paul is making. So Sarah, on one hand, corresponded to the new Jerusalem above, the mother of all the children of grace, the heavenly city, which one day we read in Revelation is going to come to earth, is now the city of the living God. And for now it's the home of departed believers. Paul uses the rabbinical idea that the heavenly Jerusalem corresponds to the one here to illustrate his point without endorsing their ideas. So... Our citizenship, we're told in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven, from whom we look for the Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham looked for a city, we're told, which has its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham didn't make this world his home. And really, that's the, the question we should ask ourselves, actually, at this point. Is it that citizenship that prioritises our life? So we just read, read on. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not, uh, bearest not. Break forth and cry, Thou that travailest not. For the desolate has many more children than she that has a husband. Interestingly, in Isaiah 54 verse 1, where this quote is taken from, it's following Isaiah 53. It prophesies really the changing fortunes of Israel, but Paul actually applies it here to the church, which is quite an interesting thing. So the prophet refers to Sarah's prolonged barrenness and Paul uses this as a fact of the figure of the progress and glory of Christianity. Let's just move on. 
So Israel will also prophesy to enter into a period in which she will not be my people. We read that in Hosea. Christ announced the subsequent blindness. We've said that already. And Paul indicates that will endure up until the time of the rapture. Uh, in fact, it will probably go just beyond the rapture. We'll look at that in uh, some future study. But in an ultimate sense, her eventual fullness also portrays her millennial blessings. Ultimately, Israel will be blessed. And Paul applies this passage. He's not claiming it was fulfilled in this context of Sarah. So speaking of this blessing that's coming for Sarah, there's still ultimately a fulfillment of that to come. He says, Now we speak, brethren, as Isaac was, uh, are we the children of promise. So first Paul compares the birth of Isaac to that of Christians. As Isaac experienced a supernatural birth and was a child by means of a promise, so each believer experiences a supernatural birth and is a recipient of the promise of salvation. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And really, just Paul speaking of this issue, that this, you know, the apostle was comparing Ishmael's persecution of Isaac so the false teachers in Galatia are persecuting the believers, the opposition they were giving. Abraham, of course, celebrated the weaning of Isaac at a banquet. On that occasion, Ishmael mocked Isaac, laughing, uh, and so on. Very similar to the type of thing that was happening. So that early animosity has been perpetuated. Of course, in those two people, we see the descendants of Abraham, descendants of Isaac, and we see the, the tensions between the Muslim nations today and Israel. Paul then likens the Judaizers to Ishmael as those who were born out of a legalistic self-effort and he charged that they were that they continued to persecute the true believers who were born by the power of the Spirit. And with few exceptions, Paul's persecution came from the Jews, the people in bondage to the law, interestingly enough. Nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So this is the third argument that Paul brings in. And Paul is comparing the action of Abraham and now really saying this is the obligation of these Galatian Christians. That they should wake up and realize what's going on. And saying, you know, they're not going to be heir with you because you are born as free. When Sarah observed Ishmael mocking, if you remember, she asked Abraham to have Hagar and Ishmael expelled, and of course that is exactly what happened. And really the challenge to them is, get rid of your legalism. It's exactly the same for us. Anything that we allow into our lives, that is in addition to the simple message of grace, that God has done it all, is legalism. And it's so easy for us to put ourselves back under the law. Again, this should remind Paul's readers that the law observance brought no inheritance in the family of God. It also charged them to excommunicate effectively the Judaizers and those who accepted their false doctrines. So fundamental, fundamental incompatibility remains between law and grace, between a religion based on works and a religion based on faith. And there are only two kinds. You've only got those options. First becomes the last, the last becomes the first, because as we saw in the text a moment ago, Sarah, the barren one, becomes fruitful, the bomb of Hagar is set aside, grace supersedes law. And so our final verse of the chapter, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You know, in conclusion, Paul affirmed that he had the, had the Galatian believers were not children of the slave woman who was driven away and was denied a share in inheritance. Rather, all believers are children of the free woman, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let's uh, just close in prayer. Well, Father God, we just thank you now for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is just sufficient. That, Lord, we don't need to add to anything that you have done because it's all completed. As Christ on the cross cried out, it is finished. Lord, everything was done. You've purchased our salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn the salvation. And Jesus, you are working in us that wonderful work of sanctification by your grace. And all we need to do, Lord, is to let you do it. So Lord, help us not to try and do things ourselves, to hold on, to try and work away ourselves, but Lord, to let go 
and allow you to do that work in us. And Father, just stand back and be amazed at the wonderful grace of God. Father, help us not to be like these Galatian believers that started trying to do things, thinking it would give them some sort of better standing. So Lord, teach us, we pray, over the coming weeks, more of your grace and how our lives should be lived in grace and be walking by faith. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.